0: Today on the podcast Under the Hood gets into continuing used car problems, a crumbling EV world, street legal drag racing, an R32 EV, an apology to John Cena, and the Civic Type R is having problems. Then we'll get into a special story, The Legend of the Long Lost Shelby Cobra. I know it sounds like a goosebump book, and it actually kind of might be. Let's start the show. This thing is a freaking monster. <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and let's get under the hood. If you're waiting for prices to come down for used cars, you might have to wait until 20 26. We might never see normal levels in the U.S. used car market again. I am starting to believe that we're not. Um, that is actually why I purchased my E36. I'm like, you know what? It's probably not going to come down that much more in the future. And if it does, it's going to be a while. So why wait? Uh, but yeah, there's some interesting statistics out there already. Um, now that we are sort of three years into the more than three years into the pandemic, three years, third year of the pandemic at this point. Um, wholesale used car prices, like the ones that are sold to dealers at auction, are up by 8.8% this year. Um, it's heading back towards record highs, which is alarming. Um, It was settling down. I think earlier in the year we were expecting these things to start settling down, especially as production production starting to ramp up. Uh, But it appears that there is no slowing down. And used car inventory is down 21% from last year and off a whole 26% from pre-pandemic levels. Pre-pandemic levels of about 38 million units are not expected to come back until 2026, so we're going to be short for the next three years, it seems. Of course, these are estimates. It could change next year, but right now, the situation is looking a little dire, and leasing is actually making things worse. And not in the way that you would think. It's actually that there has been a 20% increase in consumers who are buying their leased vehicles. And this the, le- the leasing system was a big supply of used cars uh, for the market, right? you People return their cars after three years. That's the usual leasing deal. Now you've got a used car in the market being sold. Uh, well, due to the lack of supply and rising car prices... Uh, the number of owners buying their lease cars has increased. And two years ago, the used car average was about $22,000. That average now sits at $26,000. And $4,000 might not sound like a lot, but when we're talking averages, that is very, very significant. Now, the only solution that you know, could really come into play, or at least the easiest solution, I won't say the only solution, but the easiest solution would be to increase the production of new vehicles, right? I mean, you produce new vehicles, now there's more supply for the leasing folks uh, to continue leasing, and then used cars are available in the market. But now that manufacturers have gotten a taste of getting huge profits with limited production, they might not go back to producing like they did before the pandemic. What reason do they have to? If they are making good numbers while keeping production low, they are doing two things. One, they're retaining their record profits. And two, they are sort of securing their future by, you know, keeping the market with high demand or actually low supply driving that high demand. So um, it's, it's a little worrisome, uh, but for most of us, you know what does this mean in the car enthusiast market and this is a theory at best, but I think rising tides lift all boats, right, and in this case, what that means is if new used car prices let's say let's call them new used cars, like if they're five to ten years old uh remain high. Then that will just in turn impact the enthusiast market, the 90s shitbox shitbox market, the 80s shitbox market. Let's go back as far as you can. Uh, It drives the. It might not be a one for one move, but it does drive those prices higher. And um depreciation which is good for people who are owning new cars i think is going to slow down as well so if say you're looking to buy a you know 2020 Toyota Supra in 5 years cuz you're expecting that price to have like you like you see with most new cars right depreciation is pretty significant within those first 5 years that might actually slow down i mean the lack of cars in the market um, is going to maintain that depreciation from, you know, getting too significant. And therefore, when you are ready to buy a used car, you're going to be paying expensive prices. Um, and that, that in turn actually might drive people away from newer cars. And you're seeing more people uh, more frequently using maybe 20-year-old cars, 20 to 25. Maybe let's call it 15 to 25-year-old cars. Um so that's going to drive those prices up as well. So the situation is not the greatest. Like I said, these are all numbers that we're playing with currently. Things could change in the next couple of years. Maybe they do. I hope they do. Uh, but right now, it's not looking too good. And what's, to make it worse, our next headline indicates that the EV world seems to be crumbling. Stellantis CEO, the Stellantis CEO said there may not be enough raw materials to electrify the globe. And a few weeks ago, we covered how uh, the infrastructure, at least within the U.S., to travel cross country with EV is not really there. Um, And it's not really talked about a lot, but Rich Rebuilds actually did a full episode on trying to get from the north to the south down the east coast in a Rivian. And he had a hell of a time. Uh, in the bad way because he was, he was either missing charging stations or getting to charging stations that would take forever to charge um, and we'd get stranded. Um, and now we're finding out that there aren't enough raw materials to electrify the globe. And the, the even crazier part is we're re- relying on lithium right now. and we are not producing nearly as much as we need. We have a total of 1.3 billion ice cars on the road that need to be replaced. So that's a lot of lithium if we don't change that technology. And not only will it not be enough lithium, the amount of lithium that we need might actually lead to geopolitical issues. I think it's already a problem with lithium mining um, you know, in, in Africa. I mean, there's videos online of, you know, the working condition and working conditions in these mines. Um, and then also what, what the impact of that is going to be to the environment in however many years. Um, all the mining, right? Mining sort of destroys land. Who knows? It might not impact it, but it could. It may very well can. And I guess what's required to do so isn't really available at the moment. Um the CEO, Carlos Tavares, uh, actually uh, also said that the internal combustion vehicles um, you know, are much cheaper to produce, and manufacturers have to essentially foot about 40% of the higher cost to build electric cars to make them a viable option. He did state that this, these expenses shouldn't go to car buyers, but who else is going to go to? They're not going to eat those costs. They're definitely going to give it to the buyers. And so now we're talking about a market of super expensive cars that are requiring uh, resources that might be getting collected under unethical means. Who knows? Or it could lead to that in the future. You know, now we're making a pro- uh, a market to mine uh, lithium. You're going to see a lot more companies working in that market now that the ev market has propped it up what that's going to mean to the environment nobody knows yet but there's potential impact there and automakers are looking to different materials to make vehicles lighter exploring different battery chemistries um, using less scarce resources maybe move away from lithium um, and then also investing in ev charging infrastructure but again this is this is all a lot of money. It's a slow it's slow moving. Honestly, I thought the industry had moved forward a lot more um, than it actually has. Now the things that have come up about the lack of infrastructure in terms of EV charging, now this is coming up with the lack of resources. Um, I still think we're far behind in the EV world, at least from completely replacing internal combustion on the roads. Uh, It's definitely not going to happen in our lifetime. ICE is going to be around for sure in our lifetime. Uh, But I think the estimates of 2035 and 2040 in some areas of the world uh, to be completely EV are becoming more and more unrealistic. Now, let's move into our next headline. Street legal drag racing is back. Okay, that was a little sort of a clickbaity title. Uh, Street Legal Drag Racers covered 8,000 miles and four strips at Sick Week 2023. I didn't know about Sick Week. I, did, I don't know if you knew about Sick Week. I actually didn't know much about Dragon Drives. Um, I'm not really in the drag racing scene, but this concept was very, very interesting. I know drifters do it out here. I forget the name of the event, but essentially... What it means is there's a five-day stretch where competitors have to navigate uh, four different drag strips in Florida, which means that the cars have to be street legal because they have to drive their cars. The teams are limited to two people, and the use of a support car is strictly prohibited. So what they do is that they all have these—all their race cars are hauling these little uh, trailers, little trailer haulers to haul their tools, extra parts— um, uh, you know, all these spares, their rate, their drag slicks, cause they're not going to be driving around in their drag slicks, basically everything they need to get some passes down at each of these drag strips, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, this is the second year sick week is happening. This is in Florida. Um, and the 350 entry spots they had open sold out in two minutes, I was thinking the first thought I had, I was, man, like we have enough tracks in California where it would be cool to also host a street legal track week where you take your street legal car across four. We could even do three. I mean, we could let's see. Let's do we could do button willow. We can do Big Willow. Auto Club, unfortunately, is off the table. We could have started at Auto Club. Big Willow, Button Willow. Button Willow now has two tracks, but that would be cheating, I guess. What would be the fourth one? Would we go up north? Would it be better to go up north? Or... I mean, I guess you'd have to include maybe a Laguna. Or we can do Vegas. There's that that option, too, keep it a little closer. But I think it might be a little more appealing if we did, like, a Laguna uh, in that tour. So five days, four tracks. Definitely, I would say it, ha- it would have to be time trial style. Like, uh, probably limit the amount of cars are on track, but essentially have um, the hot pits open to go in and out as needed. Uh hosting a race might be too difficult logistically um, but I wouldn't say it's impossible hmm. i was and but like then I started thinking like at least in California and I think everywhere else too, um drag racing is immensely popular. It's not that track driving isn't, but I feel like the community might be smaller um, and I know with a lot of car part manufacturers drag racing gets a lot of support cuz there's a lot of people doing it whereas road racing and track driving might be a little more of a niche market so i wonder if right we open 30, 350 spots to do this for a week would we sell out would we even sell out in at all right and it's forget 2 minutes like you know uh sick week did but would we sell out at all Either way, I think it would be fun to just take a week off of work and drive from track to track. Unfortunately, I tow my car now, but maybe we could get the E92 ready um, and, and do that for a week. I don't know. That would be cool. I'd be exhausted at the end of that, but I think it would be pretty cool. Anyway, let's get into our next headline. Nissan might have made it easier for me to get an R32. So they recently teased a GTR R32 EV conversion project. I know I just talked about resources and infrastructure not being there, but that's like to replace our dailies, right? I think in terms of a car that you're going to drive on the weekend occasionally, um, you're, we're there, right? We, the technology is there, and this is why Nissan is pursuing this. They did tweet about why they're doing this, and this is the quote. The R2, R32 Skyline GTR is a legendary car that continues to attract many fans. We, Nissan, have created this R32 GTR EV conversion with the latest electrification technology. They're entering the future, ladies and gentlemen. So the details of the car is it will start with a concept model, and I think that's what they're doing here. They are feeling out the market, seeing if there is a market for this, considering how popular the R32 platform is. Now, this website that they've put up that is teasing these things is the Japanese Nissan website, there's no American version, so at the moment, it looks like the distance between me and this car is very, very significant, but everything starts as a concept. And the initiative began because an engineer that worked at Nissan, uh, who loves the GTR, um, wanted to implement all the technology he's been working on at Nissan. He figured, okay, we're doing all these nice things with EV, um, why don't we take this latest electric electrification technology and put it in the GTR and see what happens? Um this is very appealing in that stateside, at least in California, I wouldn't have to deal with emissions issues. I think I would still have to deal with the uh with the automotive board in terms of safety. Uh, but I think that would be less, still less to deal with, um, if I didn't have to deal with emissions. So it'd be cool. Um, you know, you kind of, in some cases, and I would agree, you might lose your, the soul of the car without the ice engine in there. Uh, but I think it would still be pretty cool. And I think it'd be unique enough of an option, um, to still be interesting. Uh who knows if this will actually happen. I don't even know when the concept is going to come out. The pictures and video, they have one video and one picture on the website. Um and all it shows is the back of the GTR and even still has a an exhaust. Kind of wish they would have taken that off just kind of as a that would have been a nice little like easter egg or whatever. Um that shows oh this is the EV project car. We'll see what comes out of that. We'll see if this drums up enough interest. I'm doing my part by telling about, telling you about this today. Um, I, I don't know. I'm split, but I'd be excited. I think any way I can have one, I would like to have one. Um, if for some reason the laws change and I can have an ice one in California without having to spend an extra $15,000 to get it carb approved, I'm there for. Sure. Now, in our next headline, I must take a moment to issue an apology to Mr. John Cena. That's right. I have to say sorry to the man, to Mr. John Cena, because I wasn't a believer and I am willing to accept that I was wrong. John Cena daily drives a Honda Civic Type R. In a Whiskey Ginger podcast clip that went viral last week, John, John Cena stated that his daily driver was a Honda Civic Type R, even going as far as saying that a Countach is not as good of an option. And I believe it for the reasons he stated. You can't even fit a bag. It's not very convenient. Uh, and that his car of choice for any drive more than 10 miles was the Civic Type R. I was immediately skeptical. That's my literally my first thought. I even replied to a few folks like uh I don't know. You know, Fast 10 is around the corner. So this smelled as fake as the invisible man. But after some digging, I quickly realized that John Cena is a car enthusiast. And he was just being camouflaged by his fame. He, in fact, owns a 2020 Civic Type R, among other wild cars. Shout out to Carlos for putting me on some of that information. I do wonder, though, if he's using the stock seats in the car. It's a 2020. That's a lot of bulk for those bolsters because those bolsters were pretty aggressive. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, I guess it was in a great opportunity that this connected with the release of fast 10. Um, those are sort of related with him being in that movie, but it's pretty cool that John Cena, you know, drives a type R, um, when he doesn't really have to, when, I mean, he was kind of saying he could drive a Countach if he wanted, but it's just not as convenient. So Mr. Cena, I apologize and my respect goes out to you even though no one will ever be able to see you in that civic there's no denying that you are a car nut uh and I'm, now i have to go see fast 10 i think that's part of the uh part of the apology uh pretty cool glad he has a 2020 and not the 2023 because he doesn't have to uh go deal with the recall which we are talking about now, the new Civic Type R, the 2023 Civic Type R, comes with ejecto seat a stop sale has been issued for the new Civic Type R due to bad seat welds. Honda has issued an official safety recall, the 2023 Civic Type R driver's seat cushion frame stop sale the affected vehicles all trims of the 2023 Civic Type R um they haven't actually issued the VINs yet that are affected um but uh i imagine much like all recalls you're going to be able to look up your VIN and see if you need to come in in some cases i've seen videos online uh you know some of these owners are literally wiggling their seats um In these videos. So it's uh, it's definitely a problem that I've seen before. I just didn't know it was, you know, good for Honda for recognizing it immediately and making an announcement about it or at least release an internal bulletin that got leaked. Um, But, yeah, I guess it's a significant enough problem where they're going to have to take some of these cars back. Now, I mean, I think at some point things had to have changed. They had to have caught the issue at some point. And therefore, um, it shouldn't be even current Civic Type R's, but it could be. I started thinking, like, why, you know, why do these things happen, right, with bad welds, right? If it was – I couldn't find any information on if this was a robot doing the welding. Is this part of, like, the human side of the welding thing, um out there because if humans let's imagine there's a human right that's call him steve he's the one welding these uh driver seat brackets he that's his responsibility he comes in one day he does i don't know 40 car or maybe it's a week he does a week he does i don't know 300 cars that might be a lot i don't know how much are produced in a week but let's say he does 300 cars in a week and he realizes that he wasn't on the right setting or he wasn't the us- using the right material or whatever the reason may be that these things are failing. And then he's like, oh, crap. Well, now I got to fix it. So he fixes it, but doesn't say anything to anybody. Like that's that's the only way this would happen, right? Because if we said something to somebody immediately, they'd stop production. They'd be able to keep the take those cars back. But that's actually probably what happened they had been going on this entire time and finally someone caught it in, in, I don't know, yesterday, two days ago or whenever it happened. Actually, it must have been much longer ago from those videos I saw. Um, And then they said, oh, we got to stop these cars from going out and fix all the cars that have already gone out. Who knows? But this is an interesting one, especially for, for a performance vehicle. You definitely don't want your seat Coming off at the seams. That's as extremely dangerous, high braking situations, accelerating accelerating situations, turning situations, and like pretty much every situation you can think of. If something were to happen to that seat, you would be in trouble. And Honda stated that during the manufacturing process, the driver's seat cushion frame assembly may have been improperly welded, but they don't really provide any more details beyond that. Uh, you know, it, I don't know what improperly welded means in this case. And although new frames are likely to be on the way for the new Type bar, there's no report, no repair procedure uh, listed, but Honda does expect to reach out to owners mid-May. So if you own a 2023 Civic Type R right now, you don't really have any options of looking up your VINs. Even if you call the dealership, they're not going to be able to tell you anything. But Honda will be reaching out to you in what seems like two weeks. Or actually, no, six weeks at this point. We still have April to get through. So good luck, I guess. Maybe get aftermarket seats. I don't know. That's not cool. But I'm wondering how that's going to go. And those are your headlines for the week. Now we're going to get into a very interesting story. The legend of the long-lost Shelby Cobra. It was lost for over 30 years and was only found after a suicide. That's right. It sounds even more like a Goosebumps book at this point. Well, I don't know. I don't know if they'd have suicide in a Goosebumps book, actually. Now that I'm thinking about that, it was really never about that. It was just like a ventriloquist dummy. I forget them all, but anyway, I digress. So this is the long-lost story of one of the first Shelby Cobra. So let's start at the beginning with Carroll Shelby. He built a few Cobras in 1962, but it wasn't until 1964 when Peter Brock entered the picture, a Shelby designer, and he modified the Cobra design to be more aerodynamic, so it was going to be a better-performing car. It was to be known as the CSX... 2287 i'm going to refer to it as a 2287 from now on it and five other daytona coupes. one shall be the fia world championship a first for an american team so now this car is becoming tried and true so shelby retired the cars in 1965 you know soon after his victories And then the 2287 set 24 land speed records at the Bonneville Salt Flats. In 1965, he sold the CSX 2287 for a whopping $4,500. That is $4,500. Now, in today's money, that is $43,000 and he sold it to Jim Russell who was a founder of a company that made toy slot cars. So the idea here was that the the winning in the racing, the 24 land speed records in the Bonneville Salt Flats would actually make the car more famous and therefore he'd be able to start selling them and make a you know a career out of designing these cars. And so he sold that one uh, to Jim Russell but then the rest of the cars really just sat around for years Uh, they didn't really sell that Shelby would he would cannibalize them take parts take motors off of them to build other cars um, and they just kind of sat there most of them selling well below $4,000 but they would eventually all get sold, uh, you know, and there are six total in existence. These are very ra- rare cars. But after about a year, Russell sold the 2287 to record producer and songwriter Phil Spector. Some of you might recognize that name. I won't get into his career, but you can look him up. And Russell had listed the car for sale for $12,500, but no one is sure how much Phil Spector actually paid. I mean, he's a major record producer and songwriter. He could afford the 12500 at the time. Um, I don't know that he negotiated. And later in the story, we find out something that might indicate he didn't negotiate. And the story goes that Spector got so many speeding tickets that his lawyers advised him to ditch the car before his license was taken away. Uh, he never actually listened to this advice. He just continued to get speeding tickets um, and driving the car. But he ev- he eventually did get bored of the car, at least according to some people close to the story. And he stopped driving it. So it started to just sit it around. And Spectre's bodyguard started noticing the car and kind of dug it a little bit. He's like, oh, I'm kind of into this car. You know, he doesn't really use it anymore. I wonder if he'd sell it to me. So he offered him $8,000 for it. So let's say it, you know it cost it cost Spectre 12,000. He's going to sell it for 1,000. That is an extreme discount. But apparently he was very very bo- bored with the car because he actually sold it to him. And so he kept it for some time and at some point he let his daughter have it, Donna O'Hara. Uh, ended up with it in the early 70s. So it looks like the Bodyguard uh, enjoyed it for, I don't know, it's not really that long, actually. I mean, if it was sold in 65, I mean, it got sold much later. Yeah, I mean, maybe had like five years with it. with it, I would estimate. But this is where the legend is born. Right. So, under the ownership of Donna O'Hara uh, in, the old, in the early 70s, it would see occasional drives. Um, and she had some friends that would drive it. You know, occasionally it would be seen on the streets. Um, and Shelby actually offered to buy it back from Donna, and Donna refused. Well, for some reason or another, they stopped driving it, and eventually it was put in storage where it was lost to everyone. And this is where the story of the lost Cobra evolved into a legend. People started making all kinds of stories. The car had been destroyed. Carroll Shelby himself is hiding the car to increase its value. Uh, It's under a lake somewhere. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, right? For whatever reason, such and such has it. This person has it. Um, and of course, some people still assumed that Donna O'Hara had it. So that was part of it too. Now, the five other coupes were accounted for, but this 2287 could never be found. And, you know, despite the legend sort of gaining traction People still ask Donna, like, hey, you know, what happened to the car? Did you sell it? You know, where is it? Or do you have it stored? Does Shelby actually have it? And she refused to talk. She refused to confirm whether it existed. She refused to confirm whether she had it. She refused to confirm really any questions that was thrown her way. Um, and she would even get major offers for the car. So some people had more than a hunch that she had it because she got an offer for half a million dollars, multiple offers in that region for a car that she might have received for free for a car that her dad paid $1,000 for. That is like the greatest investment ever. That is Almost like winning the lottery. Not only do you get a f- like multiple years, decades it seems now, with a cool car, uh, it also is giving you an extreme return on those $1,000. But she wouldn't sell it. She wanted to keep it, and she kept it in storage, and that's where it literally sat. So that's pro- the probably the only rumor that was true was that it was in storage it was never sold she kept it this entire time and this is where the story starts getting even weirder like why would you keep the cobra stored yeah it was um you know a bit uncomfortable to drive it's not a comfortable daily driver i guess it's fun to drive any once in a while but why not take it out every once in a while instead of just having it in storage this is where uh donna's childhood friend goss enters the picture, who claims that Donna called him to meet in her La Habra apartment. So this is very local to where I'm at. She wanted to give him, according to him, she wanted to give him the 2287 along with three other cars. And this is his claim. And he also claims that she stated in the unlikely event that anything should happen to her, she wanted Goss to look after her personal effects. That means the 2287 and whatever, car, whatever other cars she had. And she, he also claimed that Donna had filed for transfer with the DMV. Now, the weirdest part is, well, let's say an even weirder part. No record of this could be found, but five days later, literally five days later, From when he claims that she said that, probably literally the most unlikely event occurred. Something that nobody would have imagined unless maybe Goss, who knows. But on October 27th, Donna O'Hara went under a bridge over a Fullerton horse trail, showered herself in gasoline, lit a match, and set herself ablaze. it is estimated uh, that she spent 15 undoubtedly agonizing hours alive from when she set herself on fire. Like it, it, it's not, you don't die immediately from those burns. Uh, It takes you a while to go. So that is not, not a good way to go. And The circumstances of the situation are so sketchy because, it again, it continues to get weirder. So the childhood friend, Goss, continues his pursuit of the car after her death. And he's even paying the fees on that storage unit container in Anaheim. But the owner of the storage facility would not let him take the car without proof of ownership. So he was trying to get the car out, Um, paying those fees to make sure that the owner doesn't auction off the container, which what likely would happen is he would take the car and then auction off the container or whatever storage, uh, garage it was in. And, but he was willing to take Goss's money in terms of retaining that rent. Uh, but he just wouldn't let him have the car without proof of ownership, which is wild. Um, I thought you could probably like sneak in like after hours, open the garage and go. So, but I guess not. He he probably would report him to the police and say that the car is stolen, but there's a whole there's a whole legal issue there. But while he is paying for the storage container and trying to figure out how to get this car out, a rare car dealer from Montecito, Martin Years, enters the game and starts looking for Donna. At this point, he doesn't know that she has passed away but she gets in contact with Donna's mom and lets her lets her know that he wants to buy the car the family assured him that they were the heirs of the cars since Donna had passed and so they struck a deal for 3 million dollars to sell the car so Martin years pays 3 million dollars for a car that Donna's dad paid $1,000 for. That blows my mind, man. That is that is crazy. I hope the E36 do, does that, but it for sure won't because there aren't there are way more than 6 of them. But that would be so cool. Man, that's so so much money. Um So he strikes a deal for $3 million sells the car and now Goss is left with nothing. Martin then agrees to sell the car to the president of Shelby American of the Shelby American Collection Museum who had been tracking the car for 15 years and they agree on 3.75 million. So this guy buys the car for 3 million and immediately goes into making $750,000. The whole time Goss is paying, poor Goss is paying for the storage container. Uh, where the car is supposedly is. Um, meanwhile, there are deals being struck in astronomical figures, but the deal for 3.75 million for whatever reason, for reasons unknown at this point ends up falling through. Martin actually backs out of the deal with the Shelby American collection museum And then goes on to sell the car to an East Coast neurosurgeon by the name of Frederick Simeone for an amount that has it's undisclosed. But I imagine it was probably I would probably say it's higher. I'm guessing that he got he was talking about the car to somebody. He got the ear of this Frederick guy and Frederick was like, hey, what are they offering you? Three point seven five. I'll give you four. Um and so the deal fell through. I don't know the timeline of these events, but I imagine that's how it happened. And this whole time, Goss is completely unaware of all of these exchanges. This whole time Goss is thinking he's got a gold mine in the storage container. Meanwhile, the mom has already sold off this car and has exchanged hands multiple times and is now not worth the 500,000 that he thought was offered. It's now worth upwards of 3.75 million dollars at the very least. And he kept paying for this storage unit. He literally kept paying for the storage unit the whole time. I don't know how long it took him, but he eventually goes back to the storage uh container, opens it, and finds that the car is gone. That's how this man found out that the car had been sold. He thought he had his pot of gold and it got swept right from under him poor guy but i don't know those circumstances are super super sketch now the car is part of the Simeone foundation automotive museum in philadelphia pennsylvania so it seems that after it was sold to frederick he kept that car and just made it part of his own museum and the car is estimated to be worth over four million dollars And this estimate is very close to that 3.75. So I'm assuming it's estimated to be worth that because of what Simeone paid for it. Or Simeone. Simeone? I don't know. But it's what he paid for it. So it's worth $4 million. Mm, I guess the other five Shelby Cobras went without much fanfare. But this, the first one, the prototype, The CSX-2287 was lost for over 30 years, being tracked by Shelby American Collection Museum, being actually watched over by this Goss friend who's very, very close to not only the person that committed suicide, but that same timeline in which that occurred. And that she, you know, states to him that it's unlikely... in. In the unlikely event that something were to happen to her, Goss is to take the personal effects and he says that. I don't know. That's super, super sketchy. And now this car has an incredible story. I'm honestly interested in seeing what the condition of it is now. I've seen pictures of it, you know, from because this story is from 2001. It's in the early 2000s when this all happened. Um, so it's been a while now for for this car. Uh, May Donna rest in peace Nobody's ever going to know Why she kept that car in storage For so long Maybe it was sentimental va- value Maybe she knew it was going to be worth a lot of money Seeing the trajectory of Carroll Shelby And Shelby Automotive But this is such an inter- interesting story And the fact that it happened in my backyard I mean this car was in the Anaheim st- In an Anaheim storage container For 30 years Before it was discovered 30 years that's insane to me but anyway that is the legend of the long lost Shelby Cobra I feel like I need a uh, Goosebumps theme song to end right now dun, 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 dun. I don't know I forget I think that's a little jingle I don't know what the actual how the actual song went but that Is our episode? You can find us at 91octane.com. That is all letters, no numbers. Also, like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. And if you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. I'm not going to leave you with anything today, but I am going to say thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging. Thank you for watching all our dumb YouTube videos. Thank you for uh, all the Instagram love and DMs and comments and likes and listening. I know you don't have to, but it's very appreciated and it keeps us going. So that is awesome. So I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, You know, keep doing it. Anything, any little bit helps. I really appreciate it. So have a good night.